Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what did the seal with the broken arm say to the shark? Do not consume if seal is broken. What's the difference between a seal and a sea lion? One electron. Ion. Electron. (laughs) My guest today is the executive director of Seal Rescue Ireland, Melanie Croce. From getting her start in landlocked Virginia, Melanie's career has ranged wildly, ultimately in a very circuitous route. Come back to seals. Today, we chat about what it's like getting dive-bombed by seabirds while conducting research on a military base, how Melanie started a nature center while living in a tent in rural Africa, and how, through the power of connections and a little serendipity, Melanie found herself at her dream job rescuing seals. Please enjoy. Melanie, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Hi, Kara. Thank you so much for having me. So you are originally from Virginia in the U.S. and you're working with seal rescues in Ireland. And I'm really excited to kind of go through your meandering journey to get there. But did you always know that you wanted to work in environmental science or with wildlife? Uh, Yes. Yes, I did. Um, From a very early age, uh, I liked to play in the woods. We had a creek nearby. We had a swamp nearby. And my sister and I used to just love to spend the day down there just looking for animals. We used to do something that we called turtle hunting, but it was not hunting. It was basically just finding turtles and just enjoying um, learning about them. And just we couldn't get enough of it. Uh, So growing up, I kind of, if we had a science project or something, I always kind of steered towards talking about conservation and the environment and animals. And I don't think I realized at the time that that would actually be a career option. It's just where I always gravitated to. So I guess in a way, I always kind of knew this is where I was was headed. (laughs) That's awesome. So you graduate high school and you decided to study at Virginia Tech. Was there a particular reason why Virginia Tech, they have a really good environmental science program, or was it just kind of like an economical factor for you? Yeah, it actually had a lot to do with um, the Department of uh, Life Sciences at Virginia Tech. It's one of the top programs in the country. Although I didn't start off in environmental science, I actually started off in wildlife science. Um, And halfway through, I actually switched uh, majors to environmental science because I I thought that it would be more marketable. I'd be able to get more jobs. Um, And it's just been ironic that ever since graduation, all of 
my jobs have been wildlife oriented. So I probably could have done both. Um, but in my current role, we actually are getting a lot more involved in proactive habitat conservation and environmental science. So it has in a way come full circle where it started off with a focus on wildlife. Uh, then it kind of meandered to environmental science, then back to wildlife and now back to environmental science. So they are really interconnected, obviously. In order to have healthy wildlife populations, you have to have a healthy environment. So the two do go hand in hand. Absolutely. That makes total sense. But yeah, when you're in college, it's an absolute concern that you want to be marketable. And that seems like a more marketable, less niche opportunity. And you still got the wildlife opportunities. That's yeah, really fun. I just kind of it started with volunteering. Um, of course, a lot of a lot of wildlife work starts with volunteering, um, but you know it just kind of pursued and and kind of picked up a lot of different experiences in a lot of different um, areas of the field, and it sort of just culminated. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's always so much to learn. Um, it's, it's, it's easier to kind of go in with an open mind and and you might find that you're more interested in aspects that you never really knew even existed. So you worked for Seal Rescue Ireland before your current role, and it wasn't called Seal Rescue Ireland at the time. Could you explain a little bit about your journey from college to your current position and some of the amazing wildlife opportunities that you've had? Yeah, so it's it's been a long journey. Um, so I'm I'm 33 going on 34, but I've actually packed a lot of lifetime into my uh, years so far, um, and worn a lot of different hats. So after graduation, I didn't really know what to do. Um, to be honest, I actually did get a, a job offer right uh, right after college, and it was doing environmental consulting. Um, and it would have been, you know, settled down with a nine to five in Northern Virginia, which is pretty much where half of Virginia Tech graduates, graduates end up going for jobs. And for some reason, I just I saw that I could get stuck there. And then that would be my career path and my job. And I just I wanted to see what else was out there. Um, so mm-hmm. I ended up taking a short term job for the um, for National Park Service down in Cape Canaveral National Seashore. And it was just a seasonal position. So I I had a lot of people sort of criticizing my decision to turn (laughs) down a permanent full-time job for a seasonal position. Really quickly, what would have been your role as an environmental consultant? And then what were you end up, what did you end up doing at Canaveral? So, so for the environmental consulting, it would have been a lot of kind of jobs um, involved with development. Hmm. So if a building is going up, if a building, you know, development is going up, roads are going in, if they're crossing an area um, that has not been developed, then there needs to be sort of, you know, an endangered species survey to see what's there and then to try to mitigate the damage that would be done. Um, So very practical work. Um, but just not really something I thought would make my heart sing. Um, of course, those are incredibly important jobs. We need to have really um, knowledgeable people there making those decisions and making sure that development does not you know, impact any endangered species or any sensitive habitat like that. But um, I, I don't know. I just I felt like there was more out there and I wanted to travel more and, and get outside of Virginia. So <laughs> you're going to laugh at this, but I actually took a job with 
National Park Service as a recreation aide, which is ultimately a surf lifeguard. <laughs> um, so I became a lifeguard. Um, but why I wanted to go there is because Cape Canaveral National Seashore actually has the highest density of nesting loggerhead sea turtles in the world. Yep. So as I'd had my day job, I would actually volunteer out at night to do sea turtle surveys, um, which was absolutely unbelievable. So um, that kind of led to some more jobs doing sea turtle work. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I guess the next job was uh, working for BP on the oil spill response, um, which was supposed to last two months and ended up lasting two and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> so that job was also kind of, you know, the, the environmental impact had been made, the spill had happened, but they were in the process of cleaning up the beach, cleaning up the habitat. But they were using a lot of heavy machinery. So there was the, the threat of further environmental impact. So they had to have natural resource advisors um, essentially doing environmental consult, consult um, in the field and just making sure that no um, further damage was being made to sensitive habitats. So we were doing endangered species surveys. So I would look for the presence of um, piping plovers or sea turtles nesting or any sort of nesting seabird activity on the beach prior to them cleaning up oil and just making sure that they weren't, you know, trampling the dunes or destroying, you know, dune vegetation or anything like that. So it was a really cool experience. I learned a lot, but it, it was a contract job, so I knew it was going to end. Mm -hmm. So that actually brought me to Ireland um, just on holiday. It was actually the first time I had ever been out of the country. <laughs> um, and so I came to Ireland with my mom and my sister. And we, um, we were, I think we were in Dingle. And we, we found some flyers in our hotel. And it said Dingle Wildlife and Seal Sanctuary. And I had a picture of a seal pup on the front with big, cute puppy dog eyes. <laughs> and we were like, yes, we have to go there. So we went. It was really, really quiet. I think we were the only visitors there that day. And there was an intern there feeding a seal. And this was a baby common seal pup. Uh, absolutely tiny, tiny and fluffy. And she was kind of bottle feeding it on the ground. And she asked us if we wanted to come kind of into the hospital area where she was doing that. And just on the spot, I looked at this work and I was just like, this, this is what I want to be doing. <laughs> so like a crazy person, I applied for a job on the spot. <laughs> Um, and I, I put in my resume and I was just like, I will not get back on the plane to go home. I will stay here for an internship if there's a position available. And it was just funny. I like to talk to the director about this now, just because she had no idea who this crazy person was <laughs> that was just trying to start a job on the spot. And she said, you know, no, we don't have any positions available at the moment, but we'll keep you on file. So I went home and a few weeks later, I actually got an email and they said that they were doing interviews. So I did an interview and she said, yep, if you'd like to start, you can start ASAP. And so I headed over on a plane. And um, so this is Dingle, which is in County Kerry, the southwest of Ireland. And that was where we were originally set up. Mm. So um, I had my internship. I was there for three months and I absolutely loved it. I told myself if I could ever get a paid position in Ireland, I would move here. Um, but of course, that was a really, really high hope. It's very hard to get, you know, 
wildlife positions paid, let alone in Ireland. So I didn't think- So your internship was unpaid for the the three months. Yeah. All interns um, here, they start as an unpaid position just because it is a lot of training and a lot of oversight Mm -hmm. that goes in you getting people um, able to to do the job. And for a three-month internship, um, by the time they're trained up and they know what they're doing, it's usually, you know, time for them to go. <laughs> so unless we're long-term people, you know, we, we can't pay them, which is great because it actually gives people an opportunity to get hands-on animal care work. And if it was just for a few paid jobs, of course, the competition would just be absolutely like so many people going for the small amount of jobs Mm -hmm. but for unpaid internships it kind of levels the playing field a little bit and people who might not otherwise get experience get the opportunity to have experience um you know i'm a good example At, at that point in life i had never worked with seals i had done really really minimal wildlife rehabilitation volunteer work and it was mostly with birds and small mammals so this was my first opportunity to really get some hands-on experience with uh, marine mammals. And it, I learned a lot. And I don't think I was even the greatest intern in the world, but it was a great opportunity for me to benefit just from that knowledge and from that experience from the people that I was learning from. Um, so it ended in December 2013. I went back home and I was actually the last intern at that facility because soon after a big storm came through and actually destroyed that facility. Oh, man. So at the time, it was just the director and her partner that were in charge of everything. They were very stretched for resources, really stretched for volunteers, just basically hanging on by their fingernails. And at this time, they were the only SEAL rescue center within the Republic of Ireland. So if that center were to close, there would be nowhere for sick, injured, and SEALs to go. Mm. Um, So they they knew this. And so that responsibility weighed heavy on them, and they just persevered. Um, So they ended up moving across the country to Court Town in County Wexford, which is on the East Coast, about an hour south of Dublin. And that's where we're set up now. Um, But I just, I can't imagine what they went through to get, at the time, 30 SEALs (laughs) from one side of the country to the other while trying to move all of their equipment, all of their, you know, supplies to the new facility and get the new facility up and running. Why the, um, why move so, across the country just because there was a facility available and they wouldn't have to start from scratch? Yes, there was a facility available. Um, and also it was a little more centralized. Mm. So Dingle in the real far you know, out in the middle of nowhere. It's gorgeous country, but it's not centrally located. So um, it was very seasonal for tourism, Mm. which they relied on for fundraising. Um, And it was also a really long journey to get seals from all over Ireland Mm. to this far corner. So just practicality wise, it made more sense to go somewhere sort of closer to the center of the country, but still coastal, closer to Dublin. So more of year round tourism. Um, And another big reason is because County Kerry is, it's a big, it's got a lot of history with fishing. Um, And there's a lot of kind of, kind of old school mindsets, um, but there was a lot of conflict between fisheries and seals. 
So, um, you know, there's a lot of unsustainable fishing practices that have been going on for many years that have greatly impact fisheries. Mm. Uh, this is not just in Ireland. This is worldwide. Up to 90% of fish stocks have been either fully or overexploited. Mm-hmm. So this is unsustainable, and we are seeing a drop in fish populations due to this. Um, but in, from a fisherman's perspective, they see seals, and they think that it's the seals that are causing the fish stock decline. So although gray and common seals, the two native species to Ireland, they are uh, protected by the 1976 Wildlife Act. It's illegal to harm them, to disturb them in any way. But unfortunately, those practices do continue. Mm. So there's a lot of illegal culls going on. There's, um, There's people that shoot seals. There's people that poison seals. I've even heard about them rigging explosive devices to target seals. Mm. So being in kind of the heart of that, that kind of fishing, um, that fishing industry in Dingle, it was very challenging for these guys to have a seal sanctuary um, because there was not a lot of local support. Um, in fact, there were some local fishermen that did some, some pretty horrible things directly targeting the seal sanctuary. So once the facility was ruined in a storm, It just kind of made sense. Instead of rebuilding from scratch here, let's relocate to somewhere where we're going to get more support. Um, And luckily, that was a very wise decision. In Court Town, you know, it's not as picturesque as Dingle, but it has a lot more. We have a lot of community support. Um, we're closer to Dublin, so there's a lot of, you know, it's it's a bigger city, so it's it's more progressive. There's a lot of tech companies, um, so there's a lot of uh, corporate social responsibility opportunities, which means, you know, big companies coming down, volunteering their time, donating to uh, causes, to charities that they support. So that's actually been a really, really important um, way that we've been able to keep our doors open in recent years is coming up with corporate sponsorships and partnerships with these big companies, mm-hmm. which just would not have been possible out in Dingle, where it's just so far from everything. Makes sense. So it's important to consider the logistics as well when you're considering a, a facility move like that. So it's it does sound like the wise decision. So you, but you weren't a part of the move. You had already, uh, your internship had ended and you were deciding your next move. So what was that? And why did you decide to do that? Yeah, well, I was back at home and I had no roots put down Mm -hmm. because I had been working um, on a, a contract job for so long. So the world was my oyster, but it was just, I I, I can understand how a lot of people entering this field feel where you don't know where to start. You don't know what direction to point Mm -hmm. in. Um, So that's kind of how I was feeling. I was just looking for jobs, trying to figure out where my previous experience would put me into a position to maybe get paid in my next role. Um, now that's where I came across a job listing for the San Diego Zoo Institute for Conservation Research. Um, and I got a seasonal position out in San Diego doing sea, uh, seabird monitoring, hmm. which was really cool. We were uh, banding birds and it was based on and Camp Pendleton, which is a Marine Corps base. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting. So Southern California has obviously beautiful beaches known around the world. Um, but because of that, there's been a lot of coastal habitat development, which means a lot of species that need that coastal habitat in order to survive 
they've been impacted. Mm-hmm. So um, there's the western snowy plover and the California least tern were the two species of seabird that was they had a stronghold in Camp Pendleton because it being a military base, developers couldn't get their hands on it. Mm. It was pretty interesting. You know, we're out there on this vacant beach. You don't see anyone for miles. You actually need a military clearance to even get to that beach. And you wouldn't see anyone all day. And then all of a sudden there would be 16 giant tanks, like army tanks, (laughs) driving by you. And it was just, it was crazy. (laughs) Um, You wouldn't even know they were there. They just come out of nowhere. And they were just training where we were coinciding, you know, our habitat uh, like our habitat research. So um, after that job, so really I quickly, kind of, you mentioned you're banding birds. What does that look like? You're out on the beach with a net trying to catch birds and put a, a little metal band around one of their ankles. <laughs> That's exactly it. Although we didn't even use nets because they were baby birds. So you, you, they could run really fast, <laughs> but they couldn't fly. So we didn't want to use nets because there was potentially harm uh, that we could do to them. So we were literally running on foot, diving in the sand to catch these birds with our bare hands. <laughs> and then we would take wing measurements, we would weigh it, uh, and we would band it. And then day to day, we would cover the same areas. So we would try to figure out how many of those chicks were actually surviving into juvenilehood and then onward to fledging and, and growing up to be adults and flying away. Do you remember um, the survival so, rate? Oh, it's, it's not very high, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, there was a lot of predation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one of the things that we were researching was how much, how many of these chicks were getting predated and also how many of the eggs. So these birds lay their nests on the beach mm-hmm. Um, and they're completely perfectly blended in with the sand. Um, so they don't even build a nest. It's just a tiny, tiny little divot in the mm-hmm. sand. And then they completely rely on camouflage. Um, but oftentimes you'd find a nest, um, you'd mark it, and then you'd come the next day and that nest would, the eggs would be gone, but you'd see bird tracks, usually crows and ravens, actually. Hmm. So, um Yes, there's a lot of predation, but at least in this area, anyways, we didn't have to worry about people trampling them. Mm-hmm. As soon as we found a nest, we would put stakes and keep the the you know the Marines, <laughs> the giant uh, tanks that come on the beach, so they, <laughs> so they don't run over them with the tanks. Um, so yeah, and then the least turns they would nest in a huge colony, and they'd all nest at once. So you'd enter this colony, and you would just be getting dive bombed by the birds, um, trying to get you away from their nests. So you're just trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, so that was a really interesting experience as well. Yeah, getting um, dive bombed by birds while you're on a military base. There's something very yeah. ironic about this. <laughs> yes. And yeah, exactly. And you wouldn't believe it, but they actually, they do intentionally poop on you. <laughs> this is their defense mechanism. <laughs> so you're at work and you're just getting rained on and, you know, just another day at work. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah. Uh, showers are not optional after a day like that. <laughs> and I, I think this is actually 
actually a good lead into the next job. I think I was starting to get a little bit more confident and a little more adventurous with uh, my field jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I went from a cushy job working for BP to getting, you know, to working with seals and then getting dive bombed by birds. So my next job uh, was in West Africa. And so I applied to be a research and volunteer in a field camp for five months on Bioko Island um, in Equatorial Guinea. Mm. It's a tiny island off the West Coast. It's closest to Cameroon, about 20 miles off the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a biodiversity hotspot. It's got the highest density of endangered primates in all of Africa. Mm. So I lived in a field camp completely cut off from electricity, from Wi-Fi, from running water, uh, from plumbing, absolutely everything for five months living in a tent. And at night, we would go out and do sea turtle surveys. And at day, we would go through the, the rainforest and we would uh, survey for primates. Mm. So that was... So your sea turtle surveys, I was on the... How do you pronounce it? Bioko? Bioko, yes. Okay, so it's on their website. So they actually do tagging as well. Were they doing tagging when you were there? Yes. So we mostly worked with leatherbacks mm-hmm. in my camp. And so we used pit tags, which is exactly like a microchip that you would give to your dog. Mm-hmm. So they would come in and we could scan them and an ID number would pop up and we'd be able to determine, you know, if this if this particular female had nested on this beach before, um, how many times this season. And I mean, some of them we would we would find had nested on that same beach up to seven times in one season. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of those nests has, you know, over 100 eggs. Mm-hmm. So it just shows you how incredibly valuable one reproductive female sea turtle is to the entire population of sea turtles. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I, I could actually just talk for an hour on stories that I have from that job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm sure you live in a tent on an Island with no uh, amenities and tag sea turtles and played with and watch monkeys. So I'm sure. Yeah. Yes. And worked closely with the locals um, because I think that was a, Ultimately, what became clear was the biggest threat to the the primates and the sea turtles, as well as every other endangered wildlife um, that was in that habitat, was poaching. Mm. So illegal hunting was going on. So we were a passive conservation presence. But I ended up working more and more with the locals on alternative livelihoods. Mm. So the idea that they could get paid to help us conserve these wildlife and then to even provide ecotourism opportunities to get paid to go show people and educate people about these wild animals. Mm -hmm. And then they suddenly become an asset alive rather than dead. Mm -hmm. So I ended up extending for another year and uh, established a nature center in the local village and started working with the local people and um, the the men I would train to be eco-tour guides Mm -hmm. and the women I um, was working with them to basically establish a program called the Bioko Artisan Collective. Mm -hmm. So it was supplying them with training and materials to make handicrafts. Um, so they had a sustainable way to make income, which wasn't selling bush meat, um, because you know they they could sell bush meat, they could sell an animal once, and that you know provides one day of income. But then if those animals run out, then they don't have income in the future. So sustainable alternatives to that, and it really it took off. It was really amazing to see people kind of the light bulb going off, mm-hmm. and they were just like, oh. 
this is another way to do things. And they just had never had that opportunity before. That's really special. And it's really important too. So you mentioned bushmeat and that's just, that's any wild animal that's caught and harvested. So instead of like domestic animals that we traditionally see like chicken and cows, this is wild animals that they go out and hunt and kill and sell for markets. And because there's a decreasing amount of wild animals available, the market price is increasing. So it makes it more appetizing for poaching, unfortunately. But I love that you were working truly from the ground up and trying to show them that there are other more sustainable options. Because once you start, once these numbers are dwindling to a certain point, your your methods are not sustainable. Absolutely. You you put that so well. Um, and it is important to explain that, you know, we weren't coming in and taking their jobs away. We were giving them alternative jobs um, because just like you said, as the populations dwindle, it actually became a status symbol to eat these endangered animals. Mm. So it was a luxury item and they were expensive. So, um, you know, they had sustainable food options that were actually much cheaper, but because of the luxury aspect of it and the status symbol, it was more the, the upper, you know, the extremely rich people that were eating it. And then the impoverished people who didn't have many options were out hunting it and they would sell it. So they weren't actually eating it themselves. They weren't, you know, sustainably harvesting in order to feed their family. They were hunting in order to sell it to really rich people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the disparity in uh, Equatorial Guinea between the extremely rich and the very, very poor is very large. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of poverty there. There's really, there's a lot of challenges with education and healthcare. Um, but there was you know, there's a lot of political issues there too. Um, the mm-hmm. ruling class was actually very, um, very affluent, and you know, I, one could say probably a, a, an amount of corruption was going on. So it was <laughs> very, very challenging to be out in the field unarmed. Um, and then you've got people that were working on the military were out doing the poaching, and these are the people that are, you know, in theory are supposed to be enforcing laws, but they were breaking the laws themselves. So, you know, really complex, um, a lot of, a lot of, you know, social challenges. Um, but I think that the program that we started really did address two issues, which was the, the, impo- the poverty as well as the depleting, um, wildlife resources. That's great. And it was a sustainable model, you're providing yeah. them something else and your ecotourism. That's really wonderful. So you mentioned you had a couple, so a myriad of stories to share. What is from just this experience alone? What's one or two that kind of stand out? Oh my God. Uh, I I always say this. I'm going to write a book eventually. I I kept a journal and sometimes I read through it. I'm just like, Oh my God, I remember that. Um, (laughs) I'm trying to think of a more lighthearted story because a lot of these stories were, you know, us out at night and we could see lights from a boat. So we knew there was a poacher. So we're running around on the beach. And, you know, for anyone that's worked with sea turtles, you know that you're not supposed to use lights because it disorients them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in these cases, it was absolutely worth it because we needed them to know that we were present. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're running around shining our lights so they knew that there was a conservation presence and would hopefully scare them away. Mm-hmm. But, you know, push came to shove. If we actually had a confrontation, there was nothing we could do. We had no authority. We were unarmed. So it was a lot of just kind of 
passive aggressive, uh, <laughs> trying to be friendly and kind of having our presence speak for itself. But I do remember one time my uh, my campmate tried to offer a poacher her the literally the clothes off her back to keep him from killing this leatherback that was nesting in front of us. No. And she just pleading with him. Um, and he ended up not taking the jacket and he didn't kill the turtle. So uh, ultimately mm-hmm. just a begging worked. So I guess that's a story with a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, he was, it's human compassion. Like this yeah. person cares a lot about this. Fine. I'll come back yeah. another day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she lives another day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a good story. So you were there for quite a while. You said, you went went there initially for six months and extended for another year? Yeah. So, I, well, I was there for five months and then I extended for another six months and then ended up extending for another six months wow. um, because it was, it was obviously a long-term project. You know, getting mm-hmm. these programs going, it's not something that you can just do and leave. Mm-hmm. It was something that it, it grows legs. And in, I've sort of found this from jumping from job to job so much that there's something to be said for, you know, staying with an opportunity and really like, you know, you can accomplish more in an hour um, than what you could do when you first started in a whole week, because there's such a learning curve, mm. you know, learning the customs, learning the language, getting the the local people to trust you. Um, there was so much there that I had to learn. And by the end of it, it was just, it really, you could see that, that extra time pay off. And then I kind of trained some of the local people to continue it going. So I, I would love to go back eventually and see how they're going and how it's doing. Um, but unfortunately, there was a big road that had just been finished when I was there um, that basically bisected the scientific reserve. Mm. So um, for, for jungle, for rainforest, for kind of untouched wilderness, a road going through the middle is the worst thing that can happen because it's not just that the road takes down, you know, trees in that, in that area where it's affected, but it also means that anyone can park anywhere along that road. And it basically opens up the extent, you know, Mm -hmm. in how many kilometers on either side. So they could pull off the side of the road and they could reach parts of the jungle that would have been completely untouched until Mm -hmm. now. So, um, unfortunately I think that there's probably a lot more bushmeat that's happening. And I really do hope that ecotourism is, is at least offering some people an alternative. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. That's, that's kind of sad to hear. So where was this position paid at all? So I started as a volunteer. Um, it was, I guess I was, I was getting my um, living expenses covered and I had a, I think it was a $500 a month stipend. Okay. So wasn't exactly paid, but um, I I at least wasn't eating into my savings. I was able to live modestly. Um, You know, I had a roof over my head or a tent depending on the day. (laughs) Um, And I had my meals paid for, but uh, yeah, probably not something that you'd be able to do really long term. Okay. No, it's it's good to know that, you know, eventually down the line, if you stay with an organization, there's an opportunity to at least have your expenses met. 100%. 
And um, even speaking from my position now, the longer people stay, the more valuable they become and the more Mm -hmm. the organization wants you to stay because otherwise they'll have to train somebody else from the ground up. Mm -hmm. So the longer you're there and the more value you prove, the more they're going to want to keep you and they will find ways to keep you, whether it's offering freedom and board, whether it's offering a stipend, whether it's maybe the promise of an actual salary paid position down the line, if you really prove your worth and you take on lots of responsibility. But from what I've found in all of my experiences is you get out of it what you put into it. And personally, I I suck at jobs I don't like. (laughs) I have had, I've tried to do jobs that I don't like it and I'm just not good at it. And that shows, you know, Um, but for jobs that I care about, you know, I, I absolutely dive in head first and, and that, that means that the, the organization starts to trust you and they, they just want to keep you around and give you more responsibility and see what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, uh, for an organization like I worked for there, it was a shoestring budget. You know, there was not a lot of money. So I had to be resourceful, incredibly resourceful. Um, so when I say nature center, I actually mean a shack with a dirt floor, um, no electricity. So we had lamps and I, I hand painted the outside myself. I hand painted the signs. Um, I had to travel two hours to the city in order to get anything printed and laminated just to have visuals up to sort of, you know, as visuals for what that we were discussing. So yeah. it was absolutely, it, it put things in perspective. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, for working with a nonprofit, uh, you know, a budget is always going to be an issue. Resources are always, always tough. I wish that governments gave more funding to charities so that we'd be able to pay more people, we'd be able to have more resources at our disposal, but just, it means you have to be more imaginative and you just have to be more resourceful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so you come full circle eventually and you come back to Ireland. Exactly. So I, I came back from, from Bioko just because, you know, I, I'd been there for a year and a half and yeah. it was starting to wear on me. It was really tough living over there and it was very lonely. Um, no one spoke English at all. Uh, the, the, the language was Spanish. So I had to give myself a crash course in Spanish and that is just not something I'm good at. Learning languages is a challenge for me, and I absolutely respect anyone who's multilingual. Um, <laughs> but because of that, it just it was very lonely. So I I had to kind of come back and figure out what's my long term plan, um, because I, I kind of knew that that was not going to be it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was searching for jobs, and I was feeling again directionless. As after so many years and so much experience under my belt, I felt like oh, I should have opportunities just coming at me from everywhere. But it, <laughs> happening. Um, and I was searching and searching and I did some traveling and, and, you know, a, a variety of things. I ended up having to work as a bartender at home for uh, about six months, mm-hmm. which actually was really valuable because it kind of gave me a crash course into re-entering, you know, <laughs> the society that I'd come from. <laughs> um, we're not, you know, going to the bathroom in a hole in the ground anymore. Uh, there's plumbing. Got to get used to that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, I like that you highlight that though. I think a lot of people have in their head, like I'll graduate college and I'll get a job and that'll be that. But a lot of these positions are contractual and it's being able to stay dedicated and stay nimble. And also sometimes just to cover the gaps, 
you get a job bartending or working at a garden nursery or wherever just to fill in those gaps so that you have some income because sometimes you just have to pay the bills. Absolutely. 100%. And I actually should have mentioned that while I was in Florida before the BP oil spill, um, you know, when I had my seasonal national park service position, I was also working at a, at a restaurant. So I I wanted to make sure I had a little bit of a nest egg there that would Mm -hmm. open more opportunities for me to kind of pursue my passion. You know, Mm -hmm. if you've got a little bit of savings there, it it really gives you more options because you can maybe go longer volunteering or uh, stay somewhere where you're not, maybe you have to pay your way while you're there just to Mm -hmm. get that experience. Um, But exactly like you said, you've got to be adaptable and just Just make sure that you are doing everything you can to put yourself into the position where if an opportunity comes, you are able to grab on with both hands. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's that's ultimately what happened. I was bartending and then I got an email out of the blue from (laughs) my former director uh, from what I had known as the Dingle Wildlife and Seal Sanctuary. You know, they had moved... Um, They were in their new site and she had gotten pregnant. So she had put in five years of blood, sweat and tears. And now she was about to have a baby. It's just like, I really need someone to take this on. Um, She knew me personally because I had interned for her, but we had contact. And that is another really big bit of advice. Never burn bridges. Always maintain good relationships with people that you work for and work with because you never know when an opportunity is going to open up down the road. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what happened. She, she basically, I got headhunted. She, uh, she, <laughs> she said, I need someone to take this over. Would you consider coming back to Ireland? And at that time, with where I was, I was waiting for an opportunity. And I kept saying that too. I remember saying that to my family and friends when I was feeling so little direction. I said, I know something's coming on the horizon. I just don't know what it is yet, but I'll know it when I see it. It's happened <laughs> so many times until now where I didn't know what was coming and then boom, it was there and it happened. And so I said, absolutely, I will come back to Ireland. Um, and so I came as operations manager. Um, okay. And... <sighs> I guess this is, and this this is five years later. I just want to point that out. This isn't like, you know, six months, eight months down the line. This is five years later that you, this opportunity came full circle and came back knocking. Yeah. And by this time she had tons of interns between me and between that five years, but she only reached out to a handful and it was people that, you know, she, she knew and trusted. Um, and mm-hmm. I had a little bit of an advantage because when I was an intern, there were few, very few interns. I think I was the last one there. So we really got to know each other well one-on-one. Um, mm-hmm. And so because of that, and of course, because she was following what I was doing for the San Diego Zoo and then, you know, establishing a nature center in incredibly rustic conditions, I guess she figured, you know, this girl knows what to do with a small budget. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I did. So I was kind of unfazed when I came here and, you know, there were holes in the floor, but I, I was used to not even having a floor in my center. It was, it was dirt. So I was like, this is a step up. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're living in luxury now. We're good. <laughs> yeah, I can speak English with people. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I um, came back and I guess it's, it, it is worth mentioning that 
Um, getting a paid job in the EU is very challenging. So that adds another level mm. of difficulty to this. So I, I applied initially for a volunteer visa, which was easier to quicker to get. So I came mm-hmm. and technically this was a salaried position, but because I was on a volunteer mm-hmm. visa, I could not legally be paid. So okay. I ended up volunteering for that position for two years. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yep. So again, um, I was getting free room and board um, and I got a stipend, but I, I couldn't be paid. Okay. So um, the whole process of getting a work visa, I ended up having to leave Ireland for six months um, I had to hire a solicitor to help me get go through the paperwork. It was incredibly challenging, and they make you leave while they're processing it. So, I mean, there were times where I thought this just wasn't going to happen, um, but ultimately it finally happened, and almost exactly a year ago, I was able to re-enter Ireland on a paid position running a seal rescue center. So the dream, the dream basically came true, <laughs> finally. Yeah. That's amazing. Such a cool story. So let's chat about Seal Rescue Ireland. They are, are y'all still the only Seal Rescue in Ireland? Yeah, absolutely. Well, in the Republic of Ireland. The Republic so of Ireland. So they're in um, Northern Ireland, which is a part of the UK. Right. And there is a Seal Rescue Center based there, but they only respond to the Northern Ireland post, uh, coastline. Uh, so we are cover, we're covering the rest of the coastline. And yes, that we are it only seal rescue center. So we've got over 7,000 kilometers of coastline that we cover. We have a volunteer network of over 600 people that have been trained by us to be able to respond to calls, to assess if a seal needs to be lifted and transported, and then how to safely lift and transport the seal to our facility in Court Town so we can give it life-saving care. That's awesome. So so I was on y'all's website and you have kind of four main tenants. You have research, rescue, rehab and release, and conservation is kind of your main focuses for the SEAL Rescue. And you touched on that you have volunteers as part of your rescue mission, and they're located throughout the country. And I thought it was really amazing that anybody can train to become a volunteer. So you, it's like a half day, it looked like a half day course, and then you can respond to a seal in distress. Exactly. So because we're covering the entire country, we need volunteers mm-hmm. throughout the entire country. So say we get a call about a seal, you know, five hours away in County Kerry, we'll look at our trained volunteers in that region. We'll send them out and then they'll lift and transport the seal to us. So it's a lot of on-call volunteers. It's mm-hmm. people that, you know, they might not hear from us from for six months if we don't happen to have a seal in that area. But if, if the time comes where we need a volunteer, we'll call them. But these are people that have, you know, families and full-time jobs. So a lot of times they're not able to drop everything at a, on a second and just go return, you know, respond to a seal. So usually it ends up um, meaning that we have to coordinate and call quite a few people before we can get uh, the transport lined up. Mm -hmm. And we also don't like people to have to drive all the way across the country. So we'll usually split up that transport. So sometimes it might take up to five volunteers just to get a single seal to us. Mm. What a wonderful coordinated effort. Some great volunteers that you have. Oh, they're amazing. I mean, our work would absolutely not be, we, we couldn't do it without these guys. Yeah. Um, 
And not only are they sort of involved in the rescue, but we also update them throughout the rehab process. We let them know, hey, your seal is eating fish on its own now. Oh, hey, your seal is out in the pools now. And then, of course, we will let them know when the seal is ultimately ready for release. And we'll invite them to the release. That's cool. Um, now, the, the seal releases are, have always been the, the best spectacle. I mean, it's the culmination of months and months of dedicated work to get these seals healthy and big enough to be able to return to the wild but because of covid we've actually needed to keep them private which has been really sad we love you know in inviting the public to join us for these really special moments but um just because of social distancing we've been doing live streams oh, so it's not quite the same but we're also able to share that moment with people from all over the world so that's one advantage of it yeah that's really special so could you kind could you go through what from phone call, there's a seal in distress to a release. Kind of what's the general process of that? And how many sure. calls do you get? Uh, well, we usually have, it depends. Um, so we, I think the most we've ever had is we've had 152 seals in one year. Okay. Um, and of course, that was my first year here. Go figure. When I was still trying to win. Trial by fire. <laughs> Um, they usually occur after storms. Mm-hmm. It's when seals have the hardest time. You know, they have to hunker down on coastlines, but because of sea level rise, because of coastal erosion, because of climate change essentially causing a higher frequency and severity of storms, it's a lot of conditions that these seals just have not been exposed to before. Mm-hmm. So they're getting, you know, washed off the beaches, they're getting separated from their mothers, they get exhausted, they get, you know, knocked into rocks, get injured. So um, after storms, we'll usually get calls from all over the place um, and people just saying, hey, there's a seal on the beach, what do I do? So we'll ask for photos, we'll ask for a description, we'll ask how long has it been there, are there any dogs in the area? Unfortunately, dog attacks is a really, really big threat to seals. Hmm. Uh, when they're on land, they're very slow. They're completely built for speed and agility in water. Hmm. So when they're on land, they're basically just a slug. Uh, so they're kind of an easy target. So we always advise that people stay at least 100 meters away from a seal on the beach, especially if it's a mother with a pup. Oftentimes people approach them and then the mother leaves and she might not come back for her pup. So that can cause orphaning. And if a pup becomes an orphan too soon, there's virtually no chance for it to survive. Mm. So that's when we have to step in. And it is always very important to say, you know, um, we do not want to take in seals that would otherwise survive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called pup napping. And unfortunately, it has happened where people just come in and grab a seal before us giving them the instructions to do so. Um, you know, seals in the wilds can do a much better job of raising their pups than we can. Right. And we don't have the space. We don't have the resources to take in seals unnecessarily. So um, it's just very important to give wildlife space, um, you know, let nature take its course to a certain degree. But because many of the threats that seals are facing are because of human activity, Mm. we have taken it as our responsibility to mitigate that by giving a second chance at life to as many animals as possible. That's great. So um, when we do get the call, we will uh, send out a volunteer. We'll assess it based on on a photo, based on a description. Um, We look for things like injuries. We look for things like maybe uh, body condition. 
for a seal, they're supposed to have a nice fat layer of blubber um, around them. It, it helps them um, stay warm in really cold conditions. It's also an energy store. Um, but if they're really skinny, it might be an indication of another problem. They might have parasites. They might have an illness. You know, who knows? Um Another thing we might look for is an entanglement, which is unfortunately very common. Um, we'll get reports of seals that have fishing net or fishing line tangled around their net or around their necks. This is very, very dangerous um, for all marine life, but especially for seal pups because they gain weight so quickly. Mm. That entanglement won't stretch. And so it'll quickly start cutting into their skin. It can cause very severe injuries and ultimately death if we're not able to um, catch them and get the entanglement off and give them medical treatment. So um, these are just some of the reasons we might get calls. Um, but once the seal gets to us, we'll do a physical assessment. We'll get its weight, its temperature, figure out uh, what care it needs, whether it needs antibiotics or antiparasitics or what. And then we'll put them in the ICU, which is basically the quiet little section in the back where they just rest. We put a heat lamp on them to help them thermoregulate. We just keep a very close eye on them. Those first couple of days are very, very telling. Um, sometimes their condition is just too far gone and there's nothing we can do. Mm. It's a really hard reality of any wildlife rehabilitation center is that there are some that you just can't save. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for, for wildlife rehab in particular, there's something called compassion fatigue, which is very real. Um, and so, you know, it can be very hard to work with animals that, that don't make it. And it just sort of, you internalize it. Um, but you know, you, you have to have a good team around you that supports you and you support each other and you get each other through it. And you really just focus on the positive cases, you know, the majority that do make it through and you get them, you know, from this tiny little emaciated seal pup into this nice, big, healthy, strong animal. And then you put it out in its natural environment. And just the feeling from that is so rewarding. And a, a big part of our work is, in addition to the rehab, is the education and awareness. So while the seals are in care, while they're going from the ICU to the kennels where they learn to eat fish on their own, out to the pools where they learn to compete against other seals. They learn to, um, they learn social interactions. They learn to swim and dive um, to ultimately release through all of these stages. We're inviting people from the public to come visit, to learn about them, to see them up close, to learn their stories, to learn the set of circumstances that brought them into our care. Mm -hmm. And then the call to action what is the environmental threat that caused this to happen? How can we prevent other animals from, you know, having to be rescued in the first place? Mm -hmm. So that's where our big picture kind of advocacy comes in. So, you know, awareness about climate change and plastic pollution and overfishing and human disturbance and habitat loss and all of these things that affect not just seals, but every wildlife species out there. So in effect, seals are an umbrella species. If we can address the threats to seals, then we're actually also addressing the threats and protecting whales and dolphins and sea turtles and seabirds, you know, all those other animals that I've also worked with, right? <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's, it's protecting everything with one effort yep. and it's just building that emotional connection between people and that animal that is the victim here you know seals are closely related to dogs and if you see one up close you'll see what i mean <laughs> they, they kind of 
got those puppy dog eyes and they, they make eye contact with you and they're very curious. They're very social. They all have unique uh, personalities. So once you kind of see that, you know, it, it draws you in and people really start to care. And then that's a way to really motivate change. Yeah, absolutely. I like that you called them the umbrella species. I also uh, saw they're called the bioindicator species because they do cross between land and sea. They do offer a really telling way to see what the environment looks like. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, they're they're an apex species in our waters mm-hmm. because there aren't really. Um, in, sharks big enough uh, to predate them anymore. So there's, you know, some orca whales will come through um, Irish waters sometimes and maybe pick off a few. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, gray seals um, are the the apex predators here, which means they're keystone species. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely vital to the health of the environment. So, you know, they've been here for millennia. They're native. They've coincided, you know, beside healthy fish stocks for thousands of years. And not only that, but they've actually honed the evolution of fish. Hmm. You know, they're, they're like wolves of the sea. So they're taking out the sick and the weak prey so that the healthy can go on and reproduce healthy, you know, fish. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, and they also are really important, just like any marine mammal. Um, they recycle nutrients, so they eat lots of fish. And if you ever come to our seal rescue center, you will see that seals poo a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you probably smell so, it too. <laughs> oh, yes. It is a very distinctive smell. Um, so that, that actually provides really important nutrients because they, they come up to the surface and they put those nutrients to the surface waters. And the surface waters is where the phytoplankton are mm-hmm. to photosynthesize. But in order to photosynthesize um, in the, the phytoplankton needs to have nutrients as well. So it's kind of, it's bringing those nutrients to surface waters where phytoplankton can take it up. And phytoplankton is the basis of the entire marine food chain. So if it weren't for plankton, we'd have nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those things where you might not see it right off the bat. It might seem, you know, to fishermen like, oh, they're here eating the fish, but they're part of the reason the fish are here in the first place. Right. It's all connected. You guys are open to the public. Are you open right now because of COVID? Oh, we had to close for three months, which was devastating. Um, but we are back open. Wonderful. We're not open. So what we, we did before is we just allowed everyone. We were open seven days a week. Uh, come in. No need to book ahead. No fee to come in. Just come in and take a free tour because we want people to hear this message. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's at the end of the day, that's our biggest motivation is to get awareness out there for habitat protection. Um but because of COVID, because of capacity restrictions and social distancing, we're now only allowed to have um, a certain amount of people here at any given time. Mm-hmm. So we've got booked time slots. And so people come and they stay for a whole hour and they actually get to go behind the scenes for the seal feed and enrichment experience. So they actually help us care for the seals for an hour. So they get trained on all the things that we've talked about, kind of the environmental protection aspect, but then they go into the hospital and they help us weigh out fish and feed the pools. 
and even create enrichment items. Mm. Um, so enrichment items are really important for animals when they're in captivity because you can imagine a seal that is supposed to be out in the wild ocean to be in this tiny little pool. It's a big change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they need mental stimulation um, and they need sort of things that will trigger their um, their instincts to, to get them ready for life in the wild. So we'll create ice blocks um, out of fish. We'll find things like seaweed and uh driftwood that we can put in with them to sort of almost like toys but you know technically enrichment items (laughs) Uh, so it's great I mean people are able to get much more immersed in the work uh, than if they just came through for a regular tour Um, the trade-off is just fewer people are able to come in for the experience Mm -hmm. but we are hoping that eventually if this COVID thing um, gets better we'll be able to open back up to tours but you know we just we never know (laughs) so we're just uh, flying by the seat of her pants and seeing what where things go. But either way, a big part is involving people in the work we do. Absolutely. Very cool. It's a really cool experience that you get to have even in under the COVID circumstances, being able to help behind the scenes. Yeah. And it is important to say, though, that uh, wildlife rehab is considered essential work. Mm-hmm. So although we weren't open to the public, our rehab work continued throughout all of COVID. Um, and we had the common seal pupping season, which started in June. So right now we've got 20 common seal pups. Mm-hmm. And You'll remember back to the beginning, a little common seal pup is the reason I'm here in the first place. <laughs> so they are incredibly adorable. They're really small. They, they like to vocalize and make cute little sounds. Um, but they're starting to eat fish on their own now. So the progress is happening. And in probably just a couple of months, they'll be ready to return back out to the wild. Um, and then in the autumn is when gray seal pupping season starts. So that's when we get in the grays. And they're a lot bigger and they're a lot more vocal and they've got bigger personalities. So it's a pretty rude awakening to go from common seal pupping season to gray seal pupping season. <laughs> but they both, you know, they, they keep us on our toes. <laughs> there you go. So one question I did want to ask, it does seem like y'all mainly just work with pups. Do you ever rescue adults? Good question. Um, we have had a handful of adults that have come in. For the most part, it's pups. Mm-hmm. So with any wildlife species, the most vulnerable is the young. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't have strong immune systems yet. They're not, you know, big and strong enough yet. And they also don't have the wherewithal. Mm-hmm. They don't have the knowledge to, you know, stay away from a dog or stay away from a fishing net. Um, so by and large, we definitely get in a lot of pups. Once in a while, we will get an adult, but they're much, much harder to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, great seal bulls can get up to 350 kilos. Um, I don't even know how many pounds that is, but it's Times massive. 2.2, right? So it's like over 600, 700 pounds? Uh, sure. Yes. <laughs> they're massive. Logistically, getting an animal like that transported to us, we would actually need a dump truck. <laughs> um, but for the most part, it, you know adults they might come up to the beach to die Mm. Um, but for the most part they don't really require our help unless it's an entanglement Um, and that's that's very tricky as well Mm -hmm. Um, usually entanglements happen to otherwise healthy animals so they're able to get away from you Mm -hmm. and if a seal hits water it's essentially impossible to catch so a lot of times you're kind of just caught uh, you're stuck standing watching from afar as an animal just slowly degrades its condition Mm. Um, and 
kind of helpless, which is really hard for, for anyone in this field. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part, um, we, we usually only get pups, but for the handful of adults, it's usually a case where either they're they're determined to be okay, or they might potentially need to be euthanized on the beach just because there's no way to help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately. Sad reality, unfortunately, working with, with any sort of rehab, right? Any wildlife rehab. Exactly. I have two more questions before we officially wrap up. You covered one of your favorite Bioko stories to tell, but my favorite question to ask at the end of every episode is, what is one of your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be, this is all career encompassing, and this could be like the best day ever, and you had everything go right, and it was just a magical experience, or it could just be like, it got really real in the field, and at the time it wasn't great, and now it's an excellent story to tell. (laughs) I've got two stories then. One is a really good, interesting one, and the other one's short. Just in the last week, we had a flood, a fire, and a COVID scare. Gosh. (laughs) So life is crazy, and there's a lot that unravels quickly. Luckily, all of those things, um, all of those things we handled, we got them under control. But like I said, you just have to be adaptable and resourceful and creative and rely on a strong team around you to handle things as they come. Um, But yeah, so I I would say probably my favorite story is we had a film crew here. I don't know if anybody is familiar with um, Dodo Heroes. It's an Animal Planet show, Mm. but they came here to film us and they, they spent a week and they really wanted to get a rescue. Um, of course, you know, a rescue footage is really important to tell the story of what we do, mm-hmm. but you can't plan on a rescue. You can't foresee when that's going to happen. <laughs> it's just, you know, when it happens. So we got a call about a rescue. Unfortunately, it was just, uh, it was just 30 minutes away. So we weren't really sure at the time if it was going to need to be rescued, but we figured, okay, we'll check it out. And the film crew came along. So we checked it out. It was in a really bad spot. Um, it looked like it had been attacked by dogs. It had some injuries to its face. Mm. Uh, there were dogs passing by us while we were on the beach assessing the situation. So we determined, yeah, this seal probably needs to come in. It was a little gray seal pup. And gray seals are born with a fluffy white lanugo coat. Um, and they lose it after about two weeks. Mm. So she was in the process of molting. So she had one patch of lanugo on her back. And I noticed that it was colorful. It looked like she had been spray painted with red, blue, and purple paint. And I thought this was very bizarre. I had never seen that before. Who's going around spray painting seal pups? <laughs> so we bring her in. Uh, we name her Falafel. <laughs> and we do a little research and we found out that there was actually a research team in Skomer Island, which is an island off the coast of Wales, which is 90 miles from where we found the seal pup. And they spray paint their seals because they're doing uh, basically survival uh, assessment. Mm. So they're going around seeing how many of these seals are surviving, you know, each time they come around. Mm. Kind of like what we were doing with the the birds in San Diego. So they had marked this individual. And because of the markings on her back, we were able to tell exactly which individual that was, when she was born, and when she was last spotted in Skomer. So we were able to figure out that this seal not only survived a 90-mile swim in a storm across the Irish Sea, but then when she got here, she got attacked by dogs, and she was only about a week old when all this has happened. So this is a tough little critter, and we 
really, we were so happy we rescued her because she deserved a second chance, man. She had fought for it. And the fact that the film crew just (laughs) happened to be there for that one rescue, they were able to tell this story so, so well and really draw in how climate change impacts not only seals, but this individual seal through telling her story. So I I have to say that's probably my favorite seal that we've ever gotten. (laughs) Absolutely. What a cool story. (laughs) It's very serendipitous how that happened. I know. You would think we had planned it. That's really cool. So I'd like to end each episode with a conservation ask or topic for the audience to go forth and be able to implement in their lives. And you had some really great ones. Um, So would you kind of cover a couple of your asks? Absolutely. And that is the the take home from all of this. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's no point in rehabbing wildlife if you're going to work so hard to get them healthy and then you put them out into an unhealthy environment where those threats still exist. So you really can't do rehab without conservation. So um, some of the conservation asks that we really focus on, some are very easy. Uh, it's it's don't deserve, uh, <laughs> don't disturb wildlife. Mm-hmm. So if you do see a seal, make sure you maintain a safe distance. But this goes for all wildlife. If an animal is looking at you, it means that you're too close. Mm -hmm. It means that that's an alternate uh, behavior than what they would do if you're not there. So if they're looking at you, it means they're focusing, their attention's on you. They're not resting. They're not looking for the next meal and they're not looking for the next predator. Mm. So if this consistently happens, it actually puts their survival in jeopardy. Mm. So it's really just important to remember that we're sharing this planet with other animals. We don't own it. And, you know, we like to walk on the beach. It's, it's a fun thing to do. It's nice for us, but other animals require that habitat in order to survive, in order to rest, in order to rear their young. Mm -hmm. So just keep in mind that when you're in nature, it's their home and they need to be able to survive. So just give wildlife space. Um, Some of the other ones that we really like to focus on, you know, plastic, plastic is a huge issue, especially in our marine environment. Every piece of plastic that has ever been produced is still in existence today. Mm -hmm. And by the year 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Mm -hmm. And for things like seals that are opportunistic, they can easily make that mistake and accidentally eat plastic. And it can kill them. And we have had seals that have come into our care that have died from eating plastic. Mm -hmm. So it is a very real threat. So anything that we can do to try to minimize that threat and to do beach cleans, to, you know, to clean up the environment around you, even if you're not the one to have littered. Mm -hmm. um, It's just really, really an important thing that we can all work for together. Um, And I guess the last one, I I could keep going, but I'd say the biggest one is climate change. Um, You know, we we are seeing these drastic changes and they're affecting every single habitat in a different way and the wildlife within. So I think just if we all work together to move towards a plant-based diet, Mm -hmm. over 50% of carbon emissions are associated with with meat production. Mm -hmm. So if we can make a shift towards plant-based diet, we're already making a big change. And by everyone doing that, we can make a big impact. Um, Another initiative that we're really um, getting started with is habitat restoration and tree planting. Mm -hmm. By planting trees, you're fighting climate change because all of that carbon is getting sequestered into the the plant. So instead of being in the atmosphere causing the greenhouse effect, plants are literally pulling that carbon into their tissues. Mm -hmm. So their leaves, stems, roots, bark, that's all carbon that would otherwise be out in the atmosphere. So 
if at all possible, you know, leave the remaining forests that we have, but also plant new ones, especially along waterways, because not only does that create habitat for animals on land, but it's actually filtering out pollution that would otherwise reach waterways. And all waterways lead to the ocean. So it, it does impact our marine environment. So, you know, planting water, planting trees along waterways is really the best way to do so many things at once for the benefit of the environment. Absolutely. And it also has the added bonus of protecting the shoreline waterways from eroding further. <laughs> 100%. And it filters air and it's got that aesthetic uh, appeal. And I guess to pull it completely full circle, my major in college was environmental science with a concentration in aquatic resources <laughs> because I would have done marine biology, but Virginia Tech was located in the mountains. So that wasn't an option. And this was the closest thing. So here I am, you know, working with seals and we're back to doing something I learned about in college, which was stream restoration and how that impacts waterways and marine ecosystems. So I was actually able to incorporate this stuff that I actually didn't think I was going to be able to use. And it's once again, it's become marketable. Yeah. Yeah. It's another great lesson of just you never know when you might need it. This was really fun to chat with you today. If listeners want to find you, connect with you and or Seal Rescue Ireland, where's the best place to do so? You can uh, go to our website, uh, sealrescueireland.org, or you can follow us on Facebook. We have lots of adorable and educational content that comes out every day. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, and we have TikTok. So make sure you <laughs> check out our, that's actually our most popular platform right now is our TikTok page. <laughs> Ew, that's so fun. Yeah, I've, I actually found you guys on Instagram, so it's fun. <laughs> Hello. Awesome. Well, Melanie, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Kara, and keep up your amazing work. Hey, listeners. Melanie and I got so caught up chatting about everything that we forgot a couple of really important points, and I told Melanie that I would throw it in at the end. So if you see seals either in the UK or in greater Europe, get a photo of the seal and ideally get a photo ID of the flipper tags. Uh, they're found around Europe. There's blue tags on these seals that identify them individually and help researchers and conservationists better understand these animals. There are more African elephants than gray seals found in the world, so these efforts are really important. Thank you again for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. 
Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.